0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, I pray as we dive into your word this morning, Father, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we'd be ready to receive what you have for us this morning, Father, that your word would find fertile soil and produce much fruit in our lives. Give us wisdom and understanding as we look at your word this morning. And we just bless you, Father, and thank you that you still speak to us, even today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of 2 Corinthians. As I said, we're going to be going through this probably uh, pretty close to through the end of the year. So uh, today we're going to be going through uh, ch- chapter 2, basically verses 1 through 17. This is kind of a short chapter. This is a a weird book uh, compared to some of the other ones we've done because the chapters for most of them are so much shorter (laughs) than some of the others. So we're going to try to get full chapters in on some of these days. But you remember last week uh, and last couple weeks actually as Pastor Joseph did the first part, um, we saw that Paul began to defend his decision of why he didn't visit the Corinthian church as he had originally planned. And uh, if you remember, there's people that were taking this and saying, hey, Paul said he was going to come, but he didn't come. He's being wishy-washy. And if he can't even be trusted about when he says he's going to return, how can we trust his teaching? How can we trust his word? And they were using that as a way to attack his authority as an apostle. So he began this letter by, uh, interestingly enough, not defending his decision, but defending his authority and his his, peak, his speaking, in his ministry. And he said, basically, guys, if I've been true to you in what I've been teaching you, then you know that I've been true to you in the things that I've said to you. And it wasn't me being wishy-washy. Sometimes stuff just comes up, and we can't do the things that we intended to do. And he wasn't intentionally setting out to do one thing and, and say one thing and do another, but that's just how life works sometimes. And he certainly... Uh, didn't want to cause him any grief. Matter of fact, we find out the reason he didn't come back when he said he would come back was actually to spare them some grief, to spare them some hurt. And it was actually due to the grace of God that he was going to do these things. And as I was thinking about this, I found it interesting but how you treat others changes when you finally understand what the grace of God towards you is. When you realize what God has done for you, the, the great grace that he's shown for you, all of a sudden if you have an understanding of that, you want to treat other people differently. It begins to change how you see other people, and and that's what Paul was doing. He's like, look, guys, I don't want to come and and hurt you by my visit. And Paul actually is going to spend this next uh, uh, chapter going into a little more detail as to why he decided to not visit them as he said he would. And we're going to see that apparently somebody in the church caused Paul a great deal of pain. We're not entirely sure who it is. Um, there's been some talk that it was the, the guy that he wrote about in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, the, the guy who was fornicating uh, with his father's wife, committing adultery with his father's wife. Um, but it, it, some people say that it was that guy. Some people say, no, it was somebody that it was uh, coming to, to oppose Paul's apostolic authority in his ministry. And the truth is is that we don't really know what this guy, who this guy that Paul's going to talk about is. We don't know who he is. They, we can make some educated guesses. but the truth is if you remember that first letter, there's all kinds of craziness going on in the church right there's, there's disorderly worship, there's adultery and fornication going on there's uh, believers suing one another there's arguments and cliques being formed I mean this really they had a whole laundry list of things that the, the that could have been done that Paul was talking about in this. So we find out that after First Corinthians, the letter to, to uh, the first letter that he wrote, he actually goes back to the Corinthian church, and it doesn't go well. And it's a very sorrowful and painful visit. Matter of fact, it seems that after that happened, Paul writes another letter that we don't have. A, there's a there's apparently. Uh, most scholars think a letter between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we don't have, and it's a letter that Paul wrote to address this situation, to address this man that, that whoever he was that caused Paul so much pain and caused the church so much pain. So Paul writes this, this letter to the church in between, and the reason he didn't go this third time is because he didn't want to cause the same pain that he caused with this last visit that we don't really know much about other than he came to deal with something uh, pretty terrible going on in the church and he didn't want to cause them pain he didn't want to cause them grief so that's why he actually writes this letter instead and we saw last week that he would actually rather visit them while they were in strength while they were actually victorious instead of visiting them while they were down and causing them additional pain amen so let's go ahead and dive into what the word has to say about this 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pain? Like I said, Paul chose not to make this this additional visit because he didn't want to cause them any pain. And I, I love reading Paul when he writes to the churches and even when he writes to his pastors because Paul is not shy about displaying his heart when he writes these letters. He's not out to to look good on paper, but he just lets it all out there. He wears his emotions on his sleeves, and you begin to see this genuineness of Paul's heart towards those that he was discipling. He said, listen, I made up my mind not to visit you because I didn't want another painful visit. His choice was actually for their benefit. You know, one of the things that I begin to see about pastors, you see with Paul and Peter and the other ones, is in many ways they're, the way that they interact is like parents. As parents, we do stuff for the benefit of our kids. We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to cause them pain. And we see Paul talking about his spiritual children in the same way. He says, look, I didn't visit because I didn't want to cause you any more pain. Apparently this last visit that they had didn't go well. This another painful visit that he's talking about. I didn't want another painful visit. This painful visit right here, he's not talking about when he came and planted the church. This is a visit after he planted the church. And it seems that sometimes after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he made the trip down there to deal with some issue. And like I said, we don't really know what the issue is, the, the, the particular issue that he was dealing with. But whatever he went down there for, it caused the church it caused paul i imagine the person being disciplined it caused everybody quite a bit of sorrow and quite a bit of pain and maybe this trip that he's talking about maybe this is the one he talked about in, in uh, uh verses 116 where he says i wanted to visit you on my way to macedonia and then to come back to you from macedonia and then have you send me on my way to judea maybe it was that trip on his way to macedonia or maybe and I think probably the way that I read it um, is that verse 116 was actually one of the trips that got dropped. This was probably what he was planning to do after that sorrowful visit because he actually doesn't look like there's any intention to go back to Macedonia. He, he, re, he reaches Troas and doesn't find Titus there. We'll look at that in a second. And then he heads straight to Macedonia. So I imagine that those two trips were additional trips planned that he didn't go. And this is what's causing all the, the harassment of Paul in his ministry. But we know that there was this visit in between because in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, he mentions this talk about coming a third time. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 says, here for the third time I am ready to come to you. He says, I will not be a burden and not seek what is yours, but you. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, he says again, this is the third time that I am coming to you. So obviously the first time was when he planted the church. And if his next visit is the third time, That means that there was a visit in between and that's the painful visit that that paul is talking about and here's the thing paul doesn't want to cause anybody any pain and paul like any good pastor he knows that sometimes you have to do the hard thing sometimes um, when you're in a position of authority and leadership then you have to you do cause pain whether you want to do so or not and the truth is is that when you correct people you have the opportunity to hurt their feelings and sometimes as pastors and as parents as well we have to do that we have to hurt our 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 kids feelings our spiritual children's feelings and i don't mean by slinging insults i'm not talking paul wasn't coming down there and and pointing out that they were a failure and calling them names and and hurting them that way but i don't know about you but when i get corrected sometimes it hurts one because you you know you disappointed somebody You know that you failed in your own life. When I get corrected, it's not that whoever corrected me is intentionally trying to hurt me, but it hurts nonetheless because you realize your own failure. And I think that Paul was hoping that this pain could be dealt with ahead of time before he made his next visit. He wanted this done with. He wanted it to be done in such a way that when he got to see them face to face, it would be in strength. It would be in encouragement. He was hoping that by writing this letter, we could make sure that things were going well, or this this letter that we're missing, the, the one where he dealt with some tough stuff. He was hoping that that could fix things, at least to a point that when he came, he wouldn't be bringing sorrow because he wouldn't have to discipline or address the issue it had already been dealt with. Because here's the thing, pastors in the church, they depend on one another. That's what he says right here. He says, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained." You guys may not know this, but pastors are actually strengthened by what's going on in the lives of of their kids, for lack of a better term, the spiritual children, the members of their church. You know, the the Bible says that pastors have have charge over your souls. It's our responsibility to look out for you, to make sure that you're doing well, that you are growing in the Lord, that you are staying solid and firm in your foundation of faith, staying solid in your salvation. And the thing is, is that pastors are, are, when I see you guys doing good, and walking with the Lord and doing, man, it just strengthens things for me. It just one of the, the the greatest things about planting this church has been watching people grow in their faith and mature in their faith and become the men and women of the of God that He intended them to be. And it just strengthens me and it gives me encouragement. But in the same manner, when people are doing poorly and when they're messing up, it, it hurts all the same as well. It's such a heavy burden because when people get wrapped up in sin and start doing poorly, it begins to, to weigh heavy on, on the people that care about you's shoulders. And I imagine that Paul's shoulders were quite burdened by this because he carried the weight for most of the early church on his shoulders. And he needed encouragement. So Paul wanted this issue cleared up before he visited them in person. Because here's the thing, if Paul shows up and ends up causing them pain and sorrow. Like I said, not by hurling insults, but by the fact that that's just the natural result of correction. If he shows up and does that, then they're going to be hurting. And if they're hurting, who could encourage him? He says, "He says, if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So he was hoping that this could be dealt with before he ever showed up. And then he continues on in verses 3-4. through four. He says, and I wrote as I did. This is that missing letter we're talking about. I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. So this is that missing letter. We know he wrote a letter. We don't have it. If it wasn't a great letter, maybe it's no surprise that the Corinthian church let that one fall through the cracks. (laughs) But uh, as I said, he wanted to deal with this issue before he actually came out there again because he knew the pain that it would cause. Like I said, these are are his children in the faith, and when he met with them, he wanted to be rejoicing and not having a time of sorrow, experiencing pain and anguish when he met with them. See, Paul had shared the gospel with these people and that was his joy. He says, you know what? I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all and Paul's joy was the gospel that he shared with them and, and when they received this gospel, we sh- he wasn't looking for this regression back into sin and they should have been in joy living in victory and in many ways we look at this and go, oh man, these crazy people. I mean, they had the truth. Why weren't they just living it out? But that's because we're looking right past our own lives and realize that so many times we have the truth we have the the promises of God and instead of walking in them we walk away from them whether intentionally or unintentionally but they should have been growing in spiritual maturity they should have been growing in love but we saw in that first that first letter that wasn't exactly the case there was all kinds of stuff going on and that the reality is is that in some ways, the, tru- the church is full of, of people that need Jesus. And uh, you know, like they say, that you know, uh, when you're on a farm, if you have a, a stable, eventually the, the stable has to get mucked out. <laughs> eventually it fills up. And uh, the truth is is the church is full of regular people that have problems, and, and uh, so the Corinthian church is not unique. It's not like they're the only ones. The truth is that every church that's ever existed has these difficult times but we should be living in victory. We have the word of God. We have more clarity and more insight into who God is and what his will is than anybody's ever had in the history of ever. We should be walking in victory. But like I said, that wasn't the case. And we we might wonder, why does this cause Paul so much pain when people fall in sin? And we've talked about it briefly already, but like I said, here's the thing. When you pastor a church, the you get involved in the members' lives and, and what happens and then you care about them just like you would care about your own children. And when, when they succeed, you succeed. And when they fail, then you fail and hurt with them. You feel the hurt. And much of this is, is because you've, you've, showed you've already showed them the way to live in holiness, in victory. You've showed them what needs to be done so it hurts you you wonder why are you guys going through this pain why are you accepting this in your life when you when you already know the answer it's jesus you already know the answer and you watch and you see the the downward spiral and there's nothing that you can do and it hurts and if any of you guys have had kids you know what that pain is like you try to teach your kids something and you think man if they would just get from me What I lived in my the mistakes that I've made, I've already learned so much. Like, if I could just share that with them and they could miss all of that pain and that hurt. But you watch them, and sometimes they do the very things that you went through. And you're like, kids, I already showed you you don't have to do this. This is a mistake, but they they want to figure it out for themselves. And it hurts. Imagine if you will, if your kid got involved in drugs and they they, they spiraled down that life. So the pain that that, that would feel if they, if they threw their life away on something like that, it's very similar to the way that a pastor feels when they see one of their members throwing their life away in sin. Because you've already shared the truth. You've already shared the way out. And you watch, and there's nothing more that you can do. Sometimes I wish I could walk up to people and shake the Jesus right into them. But it doesn't work. They have to make that decision for themselves. And it's hard, enough when the, it's hard enough when they stumble accidentally, but it's even worse when they make choices, stumble in intentionally. So Paul writes this letter to address this situation because he doesn't want another painful visit and it's likely to to deal with whatever this person was that was causing Paul all this anguish that we're going to read about and we're also going to see that in addition to dealing with this person he's going to charge the church with actually enacting this discipline on this individual as well and it says i wrote this out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears You know, that's the thing that when you have to correct, correcting people is one of the hardest things that I ever have to do as a pastor. Because I know the hurt that it caused. I know the pain that it caused. And it hurts me just as much. And that's the funny thing is, it's kind of like when you tell your kids, this hurts me as much, it hurts me more than it hurts you. You know, and as kids, we don't get that until you have your own kids. And then you have a light bulb go off and go, oh, that's what they meant by that. But the truth is, is that It works that way for pastors too. And Paul didn't want to have to cause them any pain. Because it hurted. He said, I I wrote this in much affliction, anguish of heart with many tears. This is apparently a very strong letter that he wrote them, and he didn't do it lightly, but he says that I, I didn't do it to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. You know, sometimes we do stuff that on the the person receiving it feels like it's pain, but it's actually for their their own good. Many people today call this tough love. Anybody ever heard of tough love? I think that's the dumbest phrase on the planet. It's not tough love. That's just love. That's what love looks like. It's when you hold people accountable and you push them. It's not tough love. That's just what love should look like. And when you let people walk away from that, when you let people act in in, in opposition to that, That's lack of love. If you love people, you're going to pull them out of the painful positions that they're in, the situations that are causing them pain. Amen? So he goes on in verses 5 through 8. He says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So, it seems like the main reason for this letter is to address this man. And once again, we, we really don't know who this man was. It could have been a visitor into Corinthian, you know, one of the people that was uh, uh, challenging Paul and trying to compete with Paul for his authority. Um, Paul does seem to regard him as a Christian because Paul wants him to be forgiven and to, to be brought back in. Um, Many commentators, as I was reading this, they, they, it used to be that everybody thought it, they were talking about that guy in 1 in, in, uh, Corinthians, I think it's uh, uh, chapter five, the, the guy who was um, fornicating with his father's wife. But in recent times, most, most commentators or, or scholars are moving away from that because you begin to see that the guy in 1 in, in Corinthians five five, which was the fornicator, chapter five, he gets dealt with really severely, much more severe than what it seems like this guy went through. This is what happened to the uh, first Corinthians five, five. It says, Paul wrote to them, you were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This guy didn't just get some minor punishment. He was actually removed from the church. He was, he was dealt with pretty severely. So most scholars think that it's probably not this guy that he was talking about because this what Paul is describing here doesn't seem to be that severe, so it's likely that it was one of the people that came through that was, that was uh, challenging Paul's authority and his apostolic authority and his teachings, and um, it's likely that it was it was a man such as this that was causing this problem. Like I said, we don't everything that we read on this and what we have in the gospel is is, is an educated guess. We don't really know. It doesn't come right out and say it. Matter of fact, Paul never names who this man was or what he did in this letter. But whatever he did, it caused Paul quite a bit of grief and pain. And, and Paul called for the whole church. He says, punishment by the majority. This word majority, as I was reading too, isn't, isn't just like 80%. It was like the whole church enacted this discipline on this man for whatever he had done. And then it says right here, this word punishment too, is, it's, sometimes stuff doesn't translate well to English. Um, as I was reading, this probably could be better translated to something like censure or, or you know, they were they were probably just not giving the guy any footroom, any, any leg hold. They weren't giving him. It's not like they kicked him out of the church and they were beating him with rods or something. It's not that kind of punishment. But they were definitely probably turning their back on him and not letting him have any speaking or talking. They were censoring what he was saying, what he was doing. And. uh but like I said, whatever it, whatever he did, it caused the entire church, the necessity of the entire church to enact this discipline on this man. And this is interesting to me because church discipline is not really talked about all that much anymore. It's not something that's done. It's not something that's addressed. Matter of fact, in many cases, um, there really is no church discipline. And I actually see the temptation of that in the church because you know when if you were to become a christian in the middle east right now and join a church you've given up everything to be part of that church and the risk of being put out of that church because you did something you fouled up that bad you would have nothing else to go back to you would have nothing and the church would have been everything to you you give your life to christ and that's all you want to be a part of so there's there's a real danger of being disciplined in that manner and the united states if somebody just you know bruises your feelings if they just brush by your feelings people just get up and leave churches they just give up they go somewhere else so i think what's as a result of that we begin running into this like oh we'll just let everybody do whatever they want and church discipline is kind of fallen by the wayside but the truth is is that discipline in the church actually must be done And that means that that you know if if you come into this church and you call me your pastor part of that is being willing to accept correction that's part of how that works but it must be done but we also must remember what the purpose is as well it's always for the benefit of the person that's receiving the correction that's receiving the discipline paul wasn't out to destroy this guy he was out to correct what he was doing so that he could be brought back into the fold. It's always about a restoration. And we see this, the truth is, is that life without discipline, we see it all too often in the world today. You know, the Bible teaches us to, to not spare the rod with our children. One of my favorite jokes is, uh, you guys know who Tim Hawkins is? He's a Christian comedian. He gets up one day and he goes, you know what? Me and my wife have made a decision We're not going to spank our kids. Don't you judge me. We're just not going to do it. We're going to tase them. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is is that that kids need discipline. And the Bible says don't spare the rod to your children, not because the Bible wants you to beat your kids. And there's a difference between beating your kids and disciplining your kids. Let me be clear. But the problem is, is when you have children that grow up without discipline, and have everything handed to them, then we have a generation of people who think that they're entitled to everything. And because they've never had to earn anything, the worst part, the opposite, of it, they actually don't even know what it means to be victorious. They don't even know what it means to actually win because there's no such thing anymore. We see what happens when discipline is removed. I think we're all seeing it now. You know, when I was a kid, um, my, my mom had separated uh, from my dad and, and uh, it was just us when we lived in Whetstone. I was an early teenager. And the truth is is that I ran ramshackle over my mom. She just didn't, she didn't know it. And then she, she married uh, uh, the guy who was my, my stepdad through, through all of my high school years and, and uh, man, he knew everything I was doing. Apparently, he had done it all before. So, I remember being in trouble all the time. And I, I, would, I was getting caught all the time because what I could pull over my mom's eyes, I, I couldn't, he just knew. And I was getting, I mean, I, I think I, there was times I spent like, I remember there was a better part of a year I was grounded. I think I had like two weeks the entire year I wasn't grounded. And when I was a kid, I was mad at them. As an adult, I realized that I was the idiot. You know how you don't get grounded? You don't do stuff that makes you need to get grounded. So, But I, I remember that I, I, I was so angry at him when all this was happening. So angry that he was coming in, that he was, he was disciplining me like this. But it didn't take that long, not much longer than me moving out of the house when I look back and I realize that he actually saved me. You know, sometimes being locked in your room saves you from going out and doing stuff that you'll regret for the rest of your life. You know, we look at some of these these kids that are going out and doing stuff right now and all this rioting and stuff, and and, uh, they're making decisions that is impacting them for the rest of their lives, when if maybe they were just grounded to the rooms, they wouldn't be out there doing stupid things. At least that's what happened in my life. I look back now and I realize that the discipline that he enacted in my life saved me. And even though I was so frustrated back then, I am so thankful right now. Church, your kids need discipline. And we need discipline in the church to make sure that we're doing the right thing. And it's so easy when somebody comes up and wants to correct something that's going on to get offended. I know because that would happen to me, right? The first thing is you get offended and then you start thinking about it and realize they're right and then you feel that pain and that that sorrow. At least that's what happened every time I've been corrected. And, uh, uh, and that's what Paul's talking He didn't want that pain. The truth is, is that it causes pain. But with this guy, he's got a pretty severe discipline going on from the church. Not only did Paul address him but he asked the entire church to address him it says the majority is enough but he says but now you should rather turn and to forgive him and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so i beg you to reaffirm your love for him you know discipline never seems good at the time of receiving it but it's necessary that we grow and it's apparent that this guy repented at some point and now he's asking the church to go ahead and reaffirm your love for him. If you, you know, after he's he's turned around, after he's repented, after he's doing the right thing, if you continue to, to, to do this to him, it says that he's going to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. You see, the point of discipline is not to crush people. It's not to destroy people. It's actually to help them be restored. It's to help them grow. So Paul says, you know what? Forgive this guy so that he's not destroyed. And he goes on, and uh, verses nine through eleven, he says, "For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. In whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design." Paul says, "I also wrote this letter to see if you would be obedient." You see, Paul was, was given apostolic authority by Jesus Christ himself. He had the authority to come out and, and, and command them and obey them. And truthfully, in, in Paul's ministry, if you look at it, he, he spent less time uh, barking orders at people and more time expressing grace and trying to help them grow in that manner. But he says that, that uh, the truth is that he has the right to do that because he has that authority. And he asked them to do something. He says, I wrote it to see that you were obedient. He, asked the, he wrote this church to find out if they would actually be obedient and enact this discipline on this member. And it, apparently <laughs> they, they, they were. And he says, but now we're going to see that he's going to teach them the importance of forgiveness and well as well. You see, the thing is, is not only is forgiveness important to an individual, how many know that when we mess up, that we're probably going to have an opportunity that we need to be forgiven particularly if we sin against somebody else. And it's important for the person so that they're not stuck in that excessive sorrow, right? It helps people grow when they realize that they're forgiven. So we know that it was important for the guy to be forgiven, but it's also important to the entire church as a whole. Forgiveness, actually, I would argue, is more important to the forgiver than the one being forgiven. We saw that The church was asked now to forgive this guy after he's repented and Paul begins to explain why it's so important that we forgive the church. Because here's the thing. Paul says, you know what? If you forgive him, I'll forgive him. Because they're living with this guy day to day and and they're actually going to see if the guy's repented. But he says, if you forgive him, then I forgive. So anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And he says, indeed, what I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. You remember that... Just a few passages ago, Paul said that, that whatever this guy did, not only did he do it to Paul, he did it to the whole church. So it was important that the church forgive them as well. And if they, would, if they would forgive him, Paul would forgive him too. And he says the reason this is important is because we don't want the enemy to gain a foothold in the church. He says, look, we're going to forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. You see, that's the thing is that when we hold on to unforgiveness, and not only does this work as a church, corporately, but this works individually in every area of your life, when you hold on to unforgiveness, you're giving the devil an opportunity to, to get hold of bitterness and distrust and hate and anger in your life. In addition, one of the greatest things I don't think people understand is that when we refuse to express forgiveness towards other, It's actually a demonstration of the lack of understanding of the forgiveness that's been given towards us. When Jesus forgave you, when He gave His life on the cross for you, He didn't hold up any qualifications. He didn't say, I'm only going to forgive stuff that's only up to this bad. He forgave you for everything. And if you understand that, if you understand what has been forgiven of you, then you'll naturally want to express that towards others. But when we want to hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness, it's actually a demonstration of the lack of understanding of what we've actually received. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. Because the thing is, if you're unwilling to forgive somebody else, do you really believe that Jesus forgave everything in you? But if we understand how much we've been forgiven, how much we've been given, the natural response is to want to express that towards others. And in doing so, we remove the opportunity for Satan to outwit us. It's interesting the word that, that Satan outwits us in that because we should be smart enough to know but if we hold on to this, stuff, uh, Satan has tricked us into holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness. But we're not ignorant of what the devil wants to do. So we need to make sure that we are forgiving so that the devil doesn't gain a foothold. And Then he continues on in chap- verses 12 through 13. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul's now making his way, this is probably after that that painful visit, and we're gonna see that he actually um, sent Titus with this missing letter to the Corinthian church. And he's making his way to Troas to preach the gospel, and actually there's there's a window of opportunity, there's a door that was open for him and the Lord, but Paul is actually so distressed by what's going on in the Corinthian church he decides not to stay there. He needed to hear back from Titus who delivered that letter. He wanted to know how they received that letter because apparently, like I said, it was a pretty harsh letter. And he was hoping it, but he gets to trust and Titus isn't there. So instead of staying and ministering there, he decides to move on to Macedonia so he can find Titus and figure out what's going on there. And that's an interesting thing to me because on one hand, if God opens a door for you, you should take it. But on the other hand, if you're not in the right frame of mind, if, you're not in the, if your spirit is troubled, how are you going to minister to people if things aren't right in your own heart? So Paul now, he's concerned about Satan getting a foothold in the Corinthian church. He sends this letter hoping that it's going to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish because he wrote it in pain and anguish, but he, he did it out of love. He's hoping that it'll, that it'll inspire change in the church, but he doesn't know. And then Titus isn't there. He doesn't know what's going on with the Corinthian church. He's probably wondering, has Satan actually won this one? Did he get the foothold? What's going on? So he packs up and he heads to Macedonia. And the good news is, is that he does find Titus there. And that's where we find that actually the letter was received pretty well. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6-9, through 9, just a few short chapters away, it says, But God who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So the good news is the Corinthian church welcomed Titus. It says, by the comfort which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting and you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. You see, the letter did what it was intended to do. They felt that correction, that grief. You know, and I, At this point, it, there was also a correction to the whole church, probably because they were letting this guy get away with whatever he was getting away with. And he says, you know what? You felt grief for a little while, but it was conviction, not condemnation. It was the ability for them to to get corrected and make a change for the better. And Paul says he rejoiced. So the devil didn't win. The devil didn't gain a foothold. And Paul rejoices that they received the letter as he hoped that they would. And then Paul continues kind of on a little digression here. He says in verse 14 through 16, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. He kind of goes off on a tangent now, speaking of actually his ministry. And he talks about this, this triumphal procession. And what would happen in in the Roman army when they would have a great victory, if a general had a great victory, they would essentially have a parade to celebrate their victory. It would be kind of what we would see today as a, a ticker tape parade to celebrate this general. And he would be up front in a golden chariot being honored for his great victory. And they would celebrate the victory, but it was often that he would have his sons walk beside him and they would get to share, his sons would get to share in the very same victory that the Roman general was now being honored for. And Paul says, that's what Christ is leading us in. Christ is the general in the golden chariot in his triumphant procession. But we're the sons behind him getting to rejoice in that very same victory. And it goes on and says, and through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That means that you've got to actually share the gospel. That's your purpose. You're being led in a, in a victory procession, but your purpose is to spread the, the fragment aroma of Jesus. That's to tell people about Jesus. That's to share the gospel. And he says, uh, Paul says, that's what they're, they're using us for because we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. See, that's the thing is that when we spread the gospel, that that aroma is being ingested by both those who are being saved those who say yes to the gospel and for those who are perishing those are who reject the gospel and he goes on to say to one the fragrance from death to death and to the other the fragrance from life to life it's an interesting expression here because when you people react to the gospel differently And for those who are being saved, it's an amazing thing. It's a fragrant aroma and it's leading from life to life because they get born again here on the earth and they have a newness of life and then they get to be with Jesus forever and pass on to eternal life. He says from life to life. But for those who reject the gospel, it's from death to death because they're still living dead in their sins right now. They're dead in their trespasses and they, 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 they see Jesus, that fragrance of Jesus, and they reject it. They don't think it's a good thing. And they go from living and being dead in their trespasses right now and continue on into an eternal death. Away from the presence of God, Jesus says there'll be suffering and gnashing of teeth. It's not a good place to be. So we, they have a choice. They can receive the gospel and go from life to life, or they can reject it and go from death to death. And then he goes on, Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God? Who is sufficient to, to share this with people so they can go from life to life or death to death? But the good news is, Paul answers this question for us. In 2 Corinthians 3 5, he says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim as as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. The truth is, none of us are sufficient, but in Christ, with God as our strength, then we are sufficient to be able to do what he's called us to do, to be led in this triumphal procession, to share the gospel. And then we'll finish up here in verse 17. It says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. This is one of my favorite verses. Because it comforts me in a world where it seems like nobody wants to hear the gospel. When I get told left and right that uh, we're believing in a fairy tale. That we're just trying to control people. Religion is all about holding people down. You know, in a world where that's the, the, it seems like, and I know this isn't true because the Bible says that the field is ripe for harvest, but it feels like nobody wants to hear the gospel anymore because they've got it all figured out themselves. But like Paul, we're not snake oil salesmen. We're not selling something that's a that's a bad product if you will we're not selling something to trick people we're not preaching false doctrine that doesn't do anything but we're preaching the word of life and paul says and we're not like so many peddlers of god's word not only is it are we not snake oil salesmen we're not doing it just for our own benefit our own gain there are many people that would that would become teachers so that they could take advantage of people they could make money they could get rich and they could do all these things but paul says that's not why we're here matter of fact if you look at paul's life he's the greatest example because wherever he went he didn't burden anybody he didn't go ahead and and take advantage of them matter of fact he worked he didn't take anything Because so i'm not here to peddle god's word but i'm here as a sincere man and all of us when we share the gospel it's as men and women of sincerity because we preach Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he is the only one that has the power to give life, the power to save. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save a person. There's no way to, other way to God, and there's no other way to salvation. And we've been commissioned by God to speak the truth of Christ to everyone who will hear it. Now the downside is is some of it are going to receive it as fragrance from life to life and some are going to receive it as a fragrance from death to death. But we've been commissioned to share the gospel. And the truth is is this fragrant aroma that we're sharing as a matter of life in death. I think sometimes as Christians we forget that. This isn't Christianity is is not something about making people feel good as they live their life. This is a matter of life and death, church. It's important. And we're sharing that with people, preaching Christ as men men of sincerity. Because we want people to be saved. Because Jesus is the only way, he's the only truth, and he's the only life. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Praise God. Well, as you've just heard me close off there, the truth is, is that Jesus is the only way, He's the only truth, and He is the only life. There's no way to the Father except through Him. There's under no other name under which men can be saved. And I always want to give an opportunity for anybody, whether you're listening online right now, or you're in the church right now, if you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to do so right now i pray that the holy spirit is ministering you right now so that you know that you actually do need a savior and it doesn't take too much thinking back to understand that we've messed up we've made mistakes we've sinned and we've fallen short of what is expected of us by god the good news is is that god loved us so much that he didn't want to leave us in that position he didn't want to leave us in a position of failure and in a fallen state so he sent his son and Jesus paid the penalty that you deserved. So here's the thing. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. For any sin, one sin, no matter how small or big by our standards, that puts us at odds with God. And the payment for that is death. And we have a choice. We can either pay that ourselves and spend eternity in hell. Or can we receive the free gift of life Because Jesus Christ paid that penalty for us. So this morning, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want you to say a prayer with me now. And all you Christians in here today, I want you to say it with me as well. And we stand in solidarity with those who are receiving this morning. Father, I thank you. That you sent your son. To pay the price that I should have paid to die the death that I should have died. And I thank you that in him, not only are my sins forgiven, but I have a brand new life inside of me. And from this day forward, I declare that you are my Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. If there is anybody here that said that prayer for the first time right now, I want you to go ahead and and let me know so that I can pray with you. If you're listening online and and you said that for the first time, shoot me an email, give me a call. And I want to pray with you because a miracle just took place inside of you. You no longer who you used to be, but you've been made brand new. You are forgiven and you are free. Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.